Here's a quick Edge of Sports editor's note before we get started. In this episode, there's a lot of discussion about New York Giants kicker Josh Brown. As of recording, he was on the commissioner-exempt list, but he has since been cut from the team. In a statement, team president John Mara said, quote, We believed we did the right thing at every juncture in our relationship with Josh. Our beliefs, our judgments, and our decisions were misguided. We accept that responsibility. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we talked to author Jessica Luther about her best-selling book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. It is a book about the intersection of sports, sexual assault, and particularly the way that football locker rooms can shield abusers and then be complicit in the abuse of women. I mean, what happened with Brown is just horrible. What we now know that they knew and didn't care about with survivors, there is this phenomenon called institutional betrayal. And it's the moment when someone goes to an institution they think is going to help them and protect them, and the institution doesn't care. But when we talk about college football, it's money. All we've done for a really long time is react and, in theory, be punitive about these issues, and that's clearly not working. So we have to figure out how to intervene earlier consent education to me has got to be number one in that. That a lot of these guys don't want to do the performance of hypermasculinity that is demanded of them in these spaces. They don't want to act like jerks. And if the coach is allowing them that space to not be like that, most of them are probably happy to not have to do that. And there's a specific urgency around talking to Jessica this week after what we've learned about Josh Brown and the New York Giants and the way that the National Football League, despite all their talk about having a no-tolerance policy around domestic violence and violence against women and sexual assault, not only has shielded Josh Brown, but has shown itself to be an organization that, according to Josh Brown's ex, Molly Brown, actually sent its investigators to intimidate her to the point where she called the police against the NFL's own security team of refugees and retirees from the Secret Service and the FBI. But let's get it started right away. Our guest is the author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape, Jessica Luther. Right off the bat, Jessica, I have to ask you about Josh Brown and the New York Giants And the fact that for all of the NFL's talk about a zero tolerance policy, you then have a case like this spill out into open view. What impressions, what lessons are you drawing from this Josh Brown case? Oh, man, not to trust any of these organizations in, in any way. You know, the NFL brought in good people to advise them on domestic violence and how to respond to it. And this is just, I mean, what happened with Brown is just horrible. What we now know that they knew and didn't care about, it just, uh The, the part of the story that makes me <laughs> wonder if some of these terrific people might even have to just quit and protest is Molly Brown's story about having to go to the police because she felt threatened by NFL investigators. Yeah. I mean, what do we even do with that? Yeah. I don't, I don't even know how to <laughs> process that kind of thing. I just think, I mean, that is malicious. I mean, that's the NFL being malicious to a victim. I don't know, man. I don't have any, like, great analysis on this. Like, it's so bad when you yeah. look at it in whole. Um, and I, 
I have moments where I think I should stop being surprised at any point in time. But this one took my breath away when I was when I finally read what had come out this last week. It gets to an interesting discussion about locker room talk. And there's been so much discussion about locker room talk after Donald Trump defended uh, sexual assault, basically, by saying it's just locker room talk. Because what you've seen in the NFL is several very high-profile players blast the NFL's handling of this, blasting Josh Brown personally by name. And yet the Giants, including their most high-profile players like Eli Manning, Victor Cruz, have stood in solidarity with him. What does that tell us about a locker room? Yeah, I think it's a place of loyalty. I think this is one of the things that I think a lot about. You know, I mainly write on college ball, which is its own dynamic, different than professional. But one thing that I think a lot about is that these guys have to go back to work. I even use that word for college ball. This is their job. But it's also this intense bonding space, apparently. It's good to see that some people are actually speaking out this time and going against the grain on this. but. I will say I'm not surprised when players back each other up, back up the organization, and specifically when teams just buckle down and say everything's fine. Now, the book is spectacular on sportsmanlike conduct, college football, and the politics of rape. And I really feel like it was going to be written by somebody at some point. And I'm just very glad it was you. It's also very raw. So what was the greatest challenge for you in terms of writing this book? Oh, I have a hard time just holding all the stories. That's just a challenge in the work that I do in general. This was a lot this time around, though. I remember I drafted, I did the first draft, and then I had to do a big edit between draft one and draft two. And part of, it took me months longer than it should have. A big part of that was it was hard to go back in. Like, I just didn't want to read anymore. I have a hard time reading about the violence itself, but I have a really hard time reading about the indifference to it. Mm. When you differentiate between indifference and violence, to me, that's also about the difference between rape culture and rape. Right. And is that what makes it so tough? Like the idea, okay, maybe it's a small number of people committing these crimes, but there is just incredibly like a widespread culture that exists to protect them. Absolutely. With survivors, there is this phenomenon called institutional betrayal. It's actually studied by a professor at Oregon. Like it's an actual thing. And it's the moment when someone goes to an institution they think is going to help them and protect them and care for them to tell them that violence has been done to them and the institution doesn't care. And what these researchers have found that that moment is often profoundly worse for the person who experienced violence than the violence itself. If they're teetering on, you know, having PTSD or any sort of like massive emotional trauma, that will be the precipitating moment is the actual institutional betrayal. When you get the people who should care about you do not, there is something so horrible about the that moment when you realize what people are willing to do in order to minimize or even ignore reports of violence and, you know, cultures of violence. Now, for me... On a very personal level, if someone said to me, what is your number one example in terms of explaining institutional betrayal? I would probably say something about the late Lizzie Seberg, about Notre Dame, and about everything that happened to her um, in terms of taking her own life and the indifference by everybody at Notre Dame 
to protect Notre Dame football. For you, if someone asked you that question, please give us an example of institutional betrayal. Which of these many stories would come to your mind first? Oh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the woman from the Baylor case, the one mm. that I reported last August with Stan Kuwachu. She reported immediately. We know that Baylor started investigating immediately, and then it just they eventually found that he hadn't violated the conduct code, which, you know, he's now been convicted of this crime in a court of law, which has a much higher standard. Much but higher. there, you know, and I, I think about, you know, she couldn't manage, she was an athlete, she had injured herself and was supposed to be doing rehab and the PTSD from that meant that she just couldn't, like she couldn't get the rehab done and they reduced her scholarship because she couldn't be on the field. And that's why she ended up having to leave. And then on top of all of that, two weeks before he's supposed to go to trial, the defensive coordinator for the football team says publicly that he expects him back on the field in a month. You know, just each one of those steps, like how do you make sense of that? And one of the things about it, like at trial, her family made it very clear. I mean, she uh, she committed to that school as a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, like she had a little party. There's pictures. They showed them in the courtroom of like the celebration of her choosing to go to Baylor. And so the idea then of these, it wasn't just one time that the university sort of turned its back on her. So she's a pretty good example, but it's almost every single story. So most of the, I mean, it's like almost every story has that moment where mm-hmm. the indifference comes in and, and the feeling of betrayal from somebody uh, within a system that they thought would help them. And you could choke on the irony or relish the comeuppance that the one person to really pay a serious price for what happened at Baylor uh, was Ken Starr, a veteran of the 90s. Uh, Absolutely. You know, what might call the sexual McCarthyism of <laughs> what happened with, with Bill Clinton. Yeah, he didn't know anything. No, <laughs> didn't know <laughs> he anything. Says. That's what he says. <laughs> and Art Bryles, like, what are your impressions of his apology tour post Baylor? And is an apology tour ever enough in your opinion or is it how people talk about the issue like how are you i know you've been on camera talking about this it happened of course sure. after the publication of the book how do you speak about the art briles apology and is there an apology that could be given by a head coach who is similarly negligent that we could be like okay this person learned something and this is a person we should feel comfortable if they are in charge of a locker room sure we have mike riley So we actually have an example of someone, you know, Mike Riley was the head coach at Oregon State in the late 90s when a woman, her name is Brenda Tracy, she's been very public about this, came forward and said that multiple players had sexually assaulted her. And she has been very clear that since she came forward a couple years ago, that it was Mike Riley's like non-response to what had happened, like not really caring about it. That was like the particularly painful part of that for her. And he is now at Nebraska, correct? Mm -hmm. He brought her in. I think it was the first place she ever went. He apologized to her privately, publicly, said he messed up, that he did the wrong thing and had her speak to his players. And I think that's very important to be that clear about your own role and the damage and the harm that's been done. You know, with Bryles, oh man, I do think it matters that you say the right stuff. Like I like that Ray Rice says the right stuff when he talks about this. He's very victim-centered in how he discusses domestic violence now, and I think that's important. I think Bryles doesn't do that. And I 
think what really gets me about him, and I've said this before, but before he is in charge of another program, I feel like he owes it to everyone, especially that program, especially that community of people that he's going into to explain what he learned. What is he going to do differently this time? If he is like, what did he mess up from before? Which I don't know if he can, you know, maybe he can't say that legally, right? Because he's getting sued. But maybe he shouldn't be in charge of a program until he can tell us that. He's in this incredibly unique position of actually getting fired for cultural failure within his football program, which is not something we see very often. And he has a moment where he could not only tell us what he's learned so that we can feel more comfortable with him having another job, which I imagine he will have, but also for all the other coaches so they can know like what he learned in that experience so they too can do better. I think everyone has to decide for themselves whether or not they forgive him or believe him or whatever they want to think about him. And for some people, and rightly so, there will never be enough. Like he'll never say the right things or he will never deserve their forgiveness. You know, I think that's such a personal thing for each person. But as far as like before he takes over a program again, it would just be so great if he could tell us what he learned. It's such a simple thing on its face, but I think it would go a long way for me, someone like me having any kind of trust it's hard to even say that, but he can do good here if he wanted to. As you're speaking, Jessica, I'm thinking about like, what is the foundation of institutional betrayal? And I'm going back and forth in my head between just years of entrenched sexism and conventional wisdom about what connotes sexual assault. And then I'm also thinking about the financial way that college Absolutely. football is centered on the campus and the need to protect that at all costs with for most people, Penn State being the most monstrous example of that, although there's no shortage of monstrous examples. But am I missing something in terms of what the foundation of institutional betrayal is? Or if the two components I named are the two cent- uh, most central ones, which one do you think has more weight at this point in time? Oh, well, I think in general, it's sort of sexism and misogyny. But when we talk about college football, like we're talking specifically about college sports, especially football, it's money. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book that's mainly about the way that these programs, universities, NCAA, sports media, don't really care about these women per se, but also they don't actually care about these guys. And, you know, maybe on a like one-to-one relationship basis, coaches do, right? But within the system, they need these guys on the field. They need them to keep playing and winning. These coaches have horrible job security, but on the flip side, get paid a bunch of money I mean, Nick Saban's pulling down, what, $7 million? I think mm. Jim Harbaugh is similar to that. But they also get bonuses. They go to a bowl game. They go to a playoff. They go to the national championship. They win the national championship. Like They get more money if they do that. The school gets more money if they do that. So there's this massive financial investment and incentive to keep these guys playing ball that definitely means that they will do whatever it takes to push off whatever happens off the field to make sure that they stay there. And fans are fine with that, right? I mean, they also want them to keep playing. This is very important to fandom that they win. And so when I look at it, it seems to me like that's sort of the overriding thing for college ball is that there's so much money in it. And specifically in in these players playing this game, the whole thing is so exploitative. 
in the book, you, this terrific last third of unsportsmanlike conduct where you just go bam, bam, bam uh, with these examples of how to turn sports, college football, into actually a citadel against rape culture as opposed mm-hmm. to something that, that enables it. And one of the things you do talk about is about the need, uh, that fans play a role in this. And the way you put it is fans need to calm down. <laughs> and when, when I was reading that section, it made me think of, in general, the work that you do. And I mean, we know that being a female sports writer is enough to invite all kinds of online hatred and abuse. Uh, when you're a female sports writer who also writes about sexual assault, I imagine that's turned up dramatically. And then not only that, but now you've written a book about it that lays it out very clearly. What has the blowback been like for you personally, and how do you handle this? Well, I'll say that I was nervous. So when you and I talked about me writing this book, one of the hesitations I had was the blowback, whether or not I could manage it. And I will say with the book, there's been almost none. And I think part of that is it's really hard to engage with it unless you read it. Like it's too much. And then if you do actually read it, you see that I'm going after this as a systemic issue and not your school. So when I write an 800 word, 10,000 word piece about a single university, fans get incredibly defensive. And it's very easy for them to start nitpicking around that particular case or their own university. The book makes that really hard. If you're going to go case by case, it's going to take you a really long time (laughs) to get through the book to do that kind of work. So I haven't experienced very much with the book, which has been lovely. You you know, what's funny is I have in my notes here that I bet it's been, I didn't want to ask it this way in case I was totally wrong, (laughs) that I bet it's been much better since the book has been written than when you were writing 800 word pieces uh, or 1200 word pieces about individual schools. Cause yeah. I've had that experience too. Like someone steps who you're just like, read the book. And well, yeah. what, do people, what, what do people have in the face of that? I mean, it's been good for me over like the last year in particular, when the book was really going to happen, you know, when <laughs> we actually got to the point where it's actually going to happen and people will be like, why aren't you writing about whatever school? And it's like, well, I've literally written about all of the schools. <laughs> They're all in the book. So that's such an easy go-to which is part of why I wrote a book. Like there's such a disgusting system in place or a system in place that allows this this kind of thing to happen over and over again. So you can always say, what about the other school? That always exists for you because there's always another school doing badly around this issue. So it's been super convenient in that sense to be able to say, like, I literally wrote a book. If you want to talk about this, you know, I've had a little bit, like I had a couple jerks by email I had like, there's like a one star review on Amazon and my husband was like, don't read it. I was like, well, I actually already did. And, <laughs> and it was fine because the person who wrote it had read the book and just didn't agree, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, at least the dude read the book. Like we can have a discussion. I didn't, but like, I'm willing to have a discussion at that level. If you've read it and you want to disagree with the individual pieces, it's hard. Yeah. The personal stuff that I get, the anger directed at me is difficult. I'm getting better at not letting it bother me as much. And, you know, and I wrote that chapter in the book to say, why are you so mad at the reporter for talking about this and not at your university? Like, can we just redirect the anger to the place that could actually fix this? And I think it's possible. Like we, even with Baylor, we saw it earlier this year, 
there was like a point in time when a survivor came forward, her blog post went viral. And in response to that, you know, other survivors come forward. That's the normal pattern. And then a bunch of alumni, I want to say thousands of Baylor alumni signed a petition telling the school they needed to do something. Wow. And so... And for folks who don't know, Baylor is a Southern Baptist school. It's Southern Baptist. It's the biggest Baptist university in the world, I want to say. Yeah. I mean, a place where until recently there were like guidelines about not allowed to be an open LGBT athlete in, in locker rooms. I mean... Oh, you, if you had gay sex, I don't know the right terminology you would get in trouble. If you were hetero and you had sex outside of marriage, you could get in trouble. Right. So to have thousands of alums who conceivably would even be people who are part of a previous generation when it was even more strict, uh, that's pretty amazing. Right. And so these are the moments where I think, okay, this is the kind of thing that fandom can do. Like you should care enough about your university. If you're so invested in it that you're going to say horrible things to a stranger that you've never met. Why are you not taking that and trying to make better the thing that you say you love so much? And so that's my feeling about fans. Yeah. And it's one of 13 really strong suggestions that you make at the end of the book. And to me, it's what makes this book better than John Krakauer's Missoula, which for many has been the gold standard about this issue. Mm-hmm. It's a good um, book. It's a great book. And I think yeah. yours is better precisely because of the last third of the book where you go through how this could be different. And you go through a broad range of issues, uh-huh. uh, teach consent, understand trauma, go federal, intervene, coaches teaching boys to be men, preventative <laughs> education, firing people, NCAA do anything beyond speechifying, sports media step up, (laughs) fans calm down, hire some women for goodness sakes. And I wanted to ask you, of all of these, which you had the most immediate faith in that could happen and make a difference? Because I don't have a lot of faith in the fan piece. Sure. I don't have a lot of faith in federal just because of how you, as you point out, how Title IX is set up on different campuses. But which do you have faith in that you're like, wait a minute, this is something we could do right now and it would actually make a huge impact? Well, it's interesting because like I wrote the chapter about firing people like a year and a half ago, probably. (laughs) And so then someone got fired, like our brows got fired for this exact thing. And McCall, the athletic director, had to step down or chose to step down. And this is one of the things, right, is like how big are those ripples going to be? Like how big are they outside of Waco? I mean, I think our brows will get another job and there's a frustration with that because it's like the system folding it back in mm-hmm. and that's how the system works. As far as like immediately, this idea of like holding these people accountable in a way that like affects their bottom line is got to be something that's happening more. But, you know, the biggest one for me is consent education. Like I can't really talk about it enough. The how of consent education is very difficult. Like how do we get it so that every five-year-old in kindergarten is learning better about consent. But it is the thing that will make a lot of this so much better if we can figure out how to do it. It's got to be preventative. All we've done for a really long time is react and in theory be punitive about these issues. And that's clearly not working. That's not changing anything. So we have to figure out how to intervene earlier, change that part of it. Consent education to me has got to be number one in that. I lead off that whole section that you're talking about with consent for that exact reason. I was like, if people only read a little bit into this section, at least they will have read about consent. Mm -hmm. 
And let's talk about, because one of the things, again, about the book that I think makes it so useful is that you take discussions that I think have been happening largely in academic corners, and you're putting it out there in the mainstream for us to discuss. And one phrase that you use, which I'd never heard before, which was a real education for me, is that phrase, broadening consent. Can you speak a little bit about the concept of broadening consent and why it's so important when teaching consent to not have it just be a discussion like no means no, yes means yes? Yeah. Well, I think we almost always talk about it with sex. You know, we live in such a weird paradoxical culture that is simultaneously prudish and sexual. (laughs) But when we get here and it's like consent and everyone's like, oh, sex, they get prudish. They use it as an excuse for why we don't need to talk about this. But like consent is a huge concept. And the way that I always talk about it now, it's like I have an eight-year-old, mm-hmm. a little boy, and we've been talking to him about consent since he was like three. And that has nothing to do with sex, right? And the reason is that like every relationship you have, there's a consent part of it. it it's just different. So you set boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. You have to communicate with people in order to understand what they're comfortable with or not within your friendship or like your parents, right? You're always sort of negotiating with your parents as far as like where boundaries are. Maybe they're not so good at them. These are all the idea of consent. And we need to be talking about it in a much bigger way because it is so much bigger than that moment where people have sex. And we're doing it all the time. And it's important that we're not doing bad messaging in the more benign moments, right? So with children, it's sort of the easiest example is that we have this cultural idea that if you ask a child to give you a hug, you expect them to do it. Mm. And there isn't really a lot of space. It's very uncomfortable for us when our son would say no and people would get like mad. He said, well, what is it? What is your investment in this child hugging you right now? Because I I don't want to teach him that he has to do that just because you make him feel bad about it. And this is like a this is a huge moment of consent at a very young age. And that matters to me. I think that that's almost more critical than even teaching, you know, the moment before sex as far as making it an everyday daily thing that people are considering. Mm. And the other part of this section didn't go exactly where I thought it was going to go. And I want to ask you about where I thought it was going to go. And that's the part called intervention, maybe. Mm-hmm. And which was, was terrific and people should read it. It just didn't go in the direction I thought it was going to go. Because you're talking about somebody being a bystander in a locker room versus somebody saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, that's not okay. Or at a party or whatnot. But one of the issues that we've seen since the publication of the book at Tennessee, and I wanted to ask you about this yeah. specifically because you are and will be speaking to college and high school audiences of athletes. Mm -hmm. What do you say about the physical risk for young men of intervention? Because the the Tennessee story, fill in the blanks here, but the idea of a player trying to step in on a question of sexual assault and actually being like threatened with murder by his teammates for doing so. The retaliation was later, right? So he actually did help her. If I'm remembering it all correctly- She's assaulted. She asks for help. He helps her. He takes her to the hospital. Yeah. And then he then later gets beat up by multiple players. And not even for confronting his teammates, but for the act of taking her to the hospital. Literally helping her. I do think this is an important thing. I think about bystander intervention in the same way I do consent, that it's way more broad than sort of just that one moment in time. On its face, it seems very simple. You see something that you think is about to happen that's very bad 
and you just intervene. And that sounds so simple when we say it, but yeah, I imagine for these guys that of course they're not just thinking of that moment. Like we're social creatures. We live in a social world and they probably have a pretty firm understanding that whatever they do in that moment, especially if it's with a, they're intervening with another player that they're going to pay for it Mm. the next day that they're going to have to go into a locker room space where they are possibly then going to be seen as the bad guy. What is the incentive here other than feeling good that they've stopped violence, which of course you would hope that would be enough. But if you are worried that your coach is going to be mad at you because you have interfered and pissed people off and messed up the dynamic in the locker room or possibly gotten someone in trouble off the field, that's all factored in in that moment. And then on top of it, the idea that you could be physically harmed for intervening, it's so much more complicated in that moment than we often pay attention to. And that's not really helping anybody, making it too simplistic. So we need a better, bigger idea of what's actually happening in the moment of intervention. And Tennessee is a great example of why someone would hesitate and not do it. Like he also then almost immediately transfers right. to another school. I feel like maybe he has said that that's not related, but the timing is interesting on that. So bystander intervention appears to be like the best answer right now, as far as like the immediate curbing of this kind of violence, especially in a college setting, but it is more complicated than it appears. Yeah. And it's so important, even with the risks, because it puts the burden on stopping this where I would argue it should be, which is on men. On the person inflicting the violence. Yes. On the person yeah. inflicting the violence. Yeah. I shouldn't, <laughs> right. I shouldn't over gender it, even though we know what is it, 90% of sexual yeah. assaults yeah. committed by men. Even if they have to take that burden, it's kind of like, okay, can, when you consider the burdens that women have had to shoulder on this question, it seems small, relatively, while at the right. same time respecting the fact that it could be an 18-year-old kid getting the crap beaten out of him for doing it, or even having his life threatened. Right. Well, you know, it would be nice if these guys knew from their coach ahead of time that if they go. saw something intervene with another player, that the coach would 100% back the person who intervened. That would probably help. <laughs> and that was the part of your suggestions that I found to be the most like, this is something that needs to be done like now. Like, how do we train coaches to teach boys to confront this stuff? Right. Because that's where the power is in a lot because it's so autocratic, so militaristic. Yes. That, and I've seen this just, this is like my own life experience here that coaches set tones for locker rooms. Absolutely. So there's this great program that Futures Without Violence has created called Coaching Boys into Men, which is in that chapter. And the thing that's so interesting about it, though, when I interview the people at Futures Without Violence, is that it works really well and is super effective when the coach wants to participate and it's voluntary. It's the coaches who are reluctant and feel forced to do it where it doesn't work, right? Which is exactly what you're saying. It's like the coach sets the tone. Like if they're already interested in making a better locker room space and teaching their guys about consent and intervention and all these sorts of things, then it's going to work because they're taking the lead from the coach. When the coach feels forced to do this kind of work, then the students recognize it. They don't take it in, in the way that they should. And, you know, these coaches are coming up in the exact same system that we're talking about. A lot of them are products of it. That sort of, it worked for me kind of thing. But yeah, there was just a great piece from the Dallas Morning News about a high school coach in the wake of the whole locker room talk discussion. The first picture in the article is literally like him showing a PowerPoint 
to his players in the locker room. And I'm pretty sure the slide is about consent. And he has told them, like, you cannot use demeaning language against women in this locker room. Like, you will get in trouble for that. That matters. That matters when the coach is the one at the front of it leading the way. Because the other thing about this is, like, I would guess that a lot of these guys don't want to do the performance of hypermasculinity that is demanded of them in these spaces. They don't want to act like jerks and be gross and whatever. And if the coach is allowing them that space to not be like that, most of them are probably happy to not have to do that. So yeah, man, coaches, we have a whole movie industry, Dave. We have a whole movie industry like built around the influence of coaches, Mm. right? Denzel Washington leading them through the snow in the like Coach Carter, like Friday Night Lights. Mm -hmm. We have this idea that coaches can do a lot of influential work with these players. And I believe that. I believe it so much that I think they should be doing it in this way too, that they could definitely be the ones making it better. And it's good to see it when it happens. Yeah. And it's interesting that one of the things that's forgotten with the whole Trump locker room talk conversation is that Donald Trump is speaking in locker rooms where there's not an authority figure, where there's no coach. You know, he's talking about country clubs, golf BS, you know, bunch of, you know, rich, oily white dudes just sort of like sitting around talking about their disgusting rape fantasies with each other and, you know, and feeling the last of their virile oats uh, by doing so. It's interesting to me, this is the point I like to make, is that Donald Trump did not say this is boardroom talk. Yeah. And he could have absolutely said that, and it would have meant the exact same thing to all of us and made way more sense for him. Exactly. But he chose locker room. So here we are. (laughs) Which in a way makes everybody complicit. So that's why I understand why people like LeBron James came out very sharply and were like, no, that's not locker room talk because it indicts everybody in a locker room. But as DeAndre Levy said, when we interviewed him on the show, that's also not good enough to just say, oh, it doesn't happen in locker rooms because it's obviously much more complicated than that. How have you talked about that? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that Trump did is what he said was so extreme that it makes it pretty easy to say, well, we don't say that. Right. Right. And as if... I mean, there's a whole spectrum of horrible things you can say up until the thing that Donald Trump said that we would all agree is bad and sexist and homophobic and transphobic and all these sorts of things and violent in its implication. But um, he went so extreme that it is pretty easy to be like, well, that doesn't happen here. But it's very hard for me to believe that there isn't like degradation of women in these spaces because it's very much built into this hyper masculine idea that especially for football, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the gladiators of our day. And I've always argued with this and no one wants to hear this, but the fact that so much homoeroticism is built into football. Absolutely. It creates this hyper defensiveness. Yes. About male touching, about bending over, about getting close. And so it has to be counteracted with the kind of hyper aggressiveness towards each other. You know, I keep thinking like, like I once interviewed, I don't know if I ever told you this, Jessica, I once interviewed this mixed martial artist and um, I asked him about the homoeroticism of some of the, of the holds. And he said, we have this expression in mixed martial arts. It's only gay if you make eye contact. Oh my gosh. Oh goodness. And I was like, wow. (laughs) God. 
sports, man. Sports, um, man. <laughs> so in the book, you know, I keep this list of college football sexual assault cases that I found since 1974 going forward. And so it's, you know, four decades, there's about 120, 125 now, which isn't a ton, but these are only cases that hit the media. And for most of that, that's only cases that hit national media because of my ability to search databases like the New York Times or whatever. I found something like 40% of these are gang rapes, are multiple players, which is really high. Wow. There's lots of caveats on what I've found, maybe those are the cases that make it to the national media. So that's why it's used, right? But it goes up to 50% if you're talking about like people who witnessed it, people who helped, like sometimes they help move her body afterwards, or help in retaliation, right? Then you're going up to like 50%. And the thing about that kind of violence, that collective experience of violence, for men, especially, is that, and this sounds horrible to say, but like, it's not about her, mm-hmm. the woman in the middle of that. Like, this is about this kind of horrible bonding experience that these men are having together. And I think about that when I think about locker rooms. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what to say beyond that. Like, I don't have like a great analysis, but I find that it, that part of all of this incredibly troubling. You know, I think there was a case just this week from Lindenwood University where there were three basketball players who were charged with gang rape. There are two Liberty University players this year. Tennessee has that whole case where, you know, six football players, but at least two were arrested of the six that are in that lawsuit. Two of those guys were arrested together for what they did. There's something about that part of it. I do think if coaches could intervene in a way that wouldn't create that kind of collective experience off the field, that would be really great. And and you think uh, Detroit Lion, DeAndre Levy, you think this is an amazing person and a great counterexample to all this. Yeah, I just got my DeAndre Levy jersey in the mail. Yeah, DeAndre Levy and Jerome Baker. So Jerome Baker's at Ohio State. These are the two guys that I like to talk about because they're such great examples of how you can come up in the culture, but then critique it from inside of it. So Jerome Baker, there's this great SB Nation piece about him that everybody should read. And when he was in high school, he was from Ohio. He had watched the horrible Steubenville High School. Mm-hmm rape case and was upset about it and decided he wanted to do something. And so started to get other players on board, like to literally have them pledge that they would not commit sexual violence, like to be very blatant about it, but also to teach consent. And so there's this great story that SB Nation tells about when he's in high school still, he's being recruited by the top programs, obviously, because he goes to Ohio State. And other players would ask if they could work out with him. And he would say to them, yes, as long as you are ready, like we're going to talk about consent while we do it. Mm. This is like a 17-year-old kid, right? So DeAndre Levy, to me, is sort of the professional version of all of this. And the fact that like you can come to this later. like You don't have to be woke about this from a young age. Like You can have an impact, even as an older guy. Not that DeAndre is old, but older than Jerome, certainly. And be out there saying really important things. I like DeAndre's messaging that... This is on men. Like men are the ones that have to fix this if we're ever going to fix it. And that's just really great to hear. It's really nice to hear someone from the National Football League who plays in that game say those kind of things. Wow. Jessica Luther, thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, thank you, Dave. Thanks for everything. Thanks for this conversation. It's terrific. 
Jessica Luther is the author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football, and the Politics of Rape. She tweets at SCATX. Here's Dave Zirin again with some choice words. And remember, Josh Brown was cut from the New York Giants after we recorded this. Let's start with the words of New York Giants owner John Mara. This is what he said about Josh Brown. He admitted to us he'd abused his wife in the past. What's a little unclear is the extent of that. This is what John Mara said after it was revealed that Brown had abused his ex-wife Molly repeatedly, at least two dozen times, according to her accounts to police and Brown's own heretofore concealed journal entries. In a more just world, John Mara would step down as president of the Giants and Commissioner Roger Goodell, who violated his own domestic violence policy by suspending Josh Brown for just one game in August, would step down as commissioner. But this is the National Football League. And this is the real world. As King County, Washington detective Robin Ostrom wrote in her follow-up report, and this is just says it so perfectly, Molly was very upfront that in her experience, the NFL publicly says that they have a no-tolerance policy on domestic violence, but the reality is that they do more crisis management and look to cover things up, end quote. Look, this is not John Mara's first rodeo. In 2014, he was appointed by Goodell, along with Pittsburgh Steelers President Art Rooney, to help oversee the FBI investigation into the NFL's handling of the infamous Ray Rice domestic violence incident in 2014. They rubber-stamped the investigation that lightly chided but effectively exonerated their dear friend Rogers' handling of the case at a moment when the press and women's organizations were calling for his job. They were the perfect people for this task, as the dynastic Mara and Rooney names are peerless in the circles of NFL ownership. At the time, Mara said, Our goal here is to try to do whatever we can to eradicate domestic violence within our league and to take appropriate steps to punish those who are guilty of these violations. Roger Goodell has made it a focus of his over the past few months, and it's something that we are all committed to doing. It makes you throw up just to read those words, that John Mara could say that with a straight face in 2014 and then act the way he did this past offseason when he offered Brown a two-year, $4 million deal and said, I believe all the facts and circumstances and we were comfortable with our decision to re-sign him. Look, the Josh Brown story on its own is horrifying. His own journal from 2014 was released where he says... I became an abuser and hurt Molly physically, emotionally, and verbally. I viewed myself as God, basically, and she was my slave, end quote. As terrible as this story is in isolation, it augurs a much greater crisis for Mara and Goodell about a league that has made a great deal of noise about a zero-tolerance policy in cases of violence against women, but in practice has done very little. The league knew that there was a history of domestic violence in the Brown household. NFL security even had to be called at the Pro Bowl when Molly, who was staying in a separate room with her kids, almost had their door broken down by Josh Brown. NFL security even helped her move her bags from one room to another. That Brown only received a one-game suspension instead of the mandatory six-game suspension for domestic violence is curious. The idea that the league and the Giants, 
all of whom employ their own team of investigators stocked with former FBI and Secret Service agents, did not know about the extent of Brown's abusive behavior is absurd. We now know that Molly Brown even called the police because she felt intimidated by the NFL's own investigators. And now the fallout begins. Players are absolutely furious, although, like we spoke about before, not necessarily players in the Giants' locker room. But the players are so upset because it looks like the league has one set of policies around domestic violence for some players and others for other players. If you know the owner or if, as a lot of players are saying, the abuser happens to be white, then there is a different set of rules. Meanwhile, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month also known as the month that the NFL festoons its players in pink to show their commitment to the cause. It's also traditionally when the NFL makes its very ham-handed attempt to expand their female market share because one can only surmise they think women really love the color pink. To have this story break out now only highlights the incredible chasm between Roger Goodell's awkward yearning for more pink dollars and the reality of how the league handles its business behind closed doors. It certainly appears that Goodell cut his friend John Mara a deal to circumvent the domestic violence policy. This offseason, when Mara re-signed Brown, this is what he said ever so piously. He said, Domestic violence is an issue that is very personal to a lot of us. I have four daughters and seven sisters, and I know I have to face each one of them. These are not easy decisions. But when you're sitting at the top of an organization and you are responsible for a lot of people— you better make more informed decisions than that, end quote. That's what he said then. And now he's saying he admitted to us he'd abused his wife in the past. What's a little unclear is the extent of that. I think ESPN's Jamel Hill said it perfectly after those words went public when she tweeted, thank you, John Mara, for letting women know that there is an acceptable amount of physical violence we can suffer before it's taken seriously. Look, this story isn't going anywhere. And it should end with not only Josh Brown out of a job, but John Mara and Roger Goodell out of the league. But while Brown might be thrown overboard, the two men at the top will remain unscathed because that's who the shield is designed to protect. And every time we have one of these stories, I'm reminded of the famous quote by early 20th century socialist Eugene Debs, who said, the criminal justice system is designed to catch the minnows while the whales go free. That is certainly true with the NFL, and it is a much better slogan for the league than the NFL is family. All right, now we got our Just Stand Up Award this week. Uh, it goes to Denasia Lawrence. If you don't know who Denasia Lawrence is, maybe you heard what she did. At the National Anthem before an NBA preseason game between the 76ers and the Heat last Friday... First, she opened her jacket to show a shirt bearing the phrase Black Lives Matter, and then she delivered the entire anthem from one knee. Denisha Lawrence. So she brought the Kaepernick, she brought the Black Lives Matter, and somehow she found the lung capacity to sing one of the most difficult to sing tunes that we have on one knee. It's impressive. You got to see this thing. And afterwards, she took to Facebook and she wrote, we're being unjustly killed and overly criminalized. 
I took the opportunity to sing and kneel and show that we belong in this country and that we have the right to respectfully protest injustices against us. And by the way, some props to Wayne Ellington of The Heat, who said to the press that he totally supported Denasia Lawrence. That was badass. Before we go this week, I know this is our sports and politics show, but you know, if you know me, you know that I'm an NBA junkie, and I like going on record with my NBA picks, so when I'm right about everything, I get the props that I deserve. So... Let me tell you already what's going to happen in the 2017 season. They're playing basketball. We love that basketball. First and foremost, the MVP this year will be Russell Westbrook. The Rookie of the Year will be Buddy Heald of the Pelicans. The most improved player this year will be Jabari Parker of the Milwaukee Bucks. Jabari is also a political cat. Always welcome to come on the edge of sports. The sixth man of the year will be Zach Randolph. The coach of the year will be Billy Donovan of the Thunder. The defensive player of the year will be Kawhi Leonard. And let me shock the world. The Golden State Warriors will not make the NBA Finals this year. Enjoy your NBA Finals as the Cleveland Cavaliers play against your San Antonio Spurs. Greg Popovich is going to bring the master plan that he has in a vault in San Antonio under lock and key that he was ready to unleash on the dubs in last year's playoffs, but then OKC got in the way. Durant is gone from OKC. That obstacle is not there anymore. Pop is going to release the Kraken on Curry and company, and they will be in the NBA Finals. You heard it here first, and I'll bet you a million bucks you heard it here last. You can contact me, Dave Zirin, whenever you want at edgeofsports at slate.com or on Twitter at edgeofsports. Thank you to everyone for the incredible tidal wave of support we received for our show last week with John Cusack. Uh, You can listen to the actor, activist, speak about all manner of things at www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. Call into the Edge of Sports hotline, 401-426-EDGE, 401-426-3343. Would love your thoughts about the interview with Jessica Luther. We will play them next week. Yo, for Dan Bloom, for associate producer extraordinaire David Tigaboo, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.